Nicholas Borneus of Capital Link, we are almost at the end of uh, an amazing uh, forum today, uh, full with tremendous uh, panels and uh, information. Uh, the title of the forum is Shipping, is it a super cycle ahead? So we had before the panel from the investors who are investing in shipping and who gave us their point of view. And now we have uh, a panel with uh, ship owners. Uh, so I'm delighted to have such a tremendously uh, high-level panel. I will turn it over to Peter Nikolai Yelsby from uh, Farnley Securities to introduce our panelists. Uh, I'd like to remind everybody that we are hosting this event today in partnership with the Farnley Securities. Uh, we've been doing that for a number of years, every year now, and I would like to thank each one of the panelists for your participation and support. And uh, Peter Nikolai, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Nicholas, and, and thank you for having me yet again. Um, you mentioned the, the title of the panel, uh, Super Cycle Ahead, and I think if we rewind back to the early days of 2020, I think very few of us expected to stand here uh, a year later with fire, shipping firing on almost every cylinder um, uh, and, and have this topic as, as kind of the final uh, panel of the day, the super cycle panel. But uh, I guess this goes to show that the disruptions are normally good for shipping. And I think that's evident by what we've seen in the container space and also the dry book space in particular, where we have you know, rates at, at decade highs or even record highs. Um, we have a unseasonably strong LNG market. We've had a very good LPG market for, for years, even though it's not fantastic at the moment. And, and the missing piece is really the tanker industry. Um, so I'm very happy to be here today uh, with a very good panel with CEOs from all the uh, key areas of shipping. Uh, I just want to give a quick introduction. First of all, we have Mark O'Neill, uh, the president and CEO of uh, Columbia Ship Management. Uh, from the LPG side, we have John Lecoris, the CEO of Dorian LPG. Uh, on LNG, it's Øystein Kalleklev, the CEO of Flex. Um, from the tanker space, we have uh, Hafnia, represented by CEO Mikhail Skov. We have Konstantin Bach of MPC Containers. And last but not least, Hamish Norton, the president of uh, Starbulk Carriers. So. Uh, to kick things off, uh, I would like to ask all of you uh, and reply in about a minute's time to talk briefly about whether we are in a super cycle for your segment or not. And maybe we can start with you, Constantine. You are arguably in the hottest market of them all at the moment, uh, the container market, which, you know, it seems like we break new records uh, every week. So are we in a super cycle, Constantine? Yes, thanks, Peter. And uh, thanks, obviously, to Capital Link for having all of us. Um, obviously, if you look at the key indicators for container shipping, this strongly suggests we are in a historically unique uh, market environment. We have record high freight rates and volumes. We have record low idle statistics. Again, historical high TC rates combined with long charter periods. So all the ingredients that one would uh, expect being present in a super cycle. Um, secondhand prices are going through the roof. We have, for example, just sold an 18-year-old vessel above new building price. So, so this gives you a flavor of where we are. So looking at these key indicators, the container vessel market has never seen these extreme numbers before. So arguably, we are in a historic uh, market environment. Whether it's a super cycle, uh, it's a term that is, is often used. I, I think uh, we are in a market that will stay very strong for the next 12 to 24 months in any event looking at the supply and demand development. And as such, at these rate levels, I would argue we are in a super cycle. Back to you, Peter. Thank you, Constantine. Uh, over to you, uh, Hamish. You were uh, working in the, uh, on my side of the table back in the last super cycle um, uh, in you know, the 03, 09 period. Uh, do you think that we're in a super cycle now or, and do you see any similarities with what happened uh, back then? Well, I, you know, I think I think there are some very moderate similarities. In some sense, you know, it's it's history not repeating itself but rhyming. Um, you know, in in the mid two thousands, that super cycle had to do with China increasing its demand for commodities faster than the shipyards of the world could keep up by building dry bulk ships, and for a period in two thousand seven, the earliest dry bulk ship that you could get delivered if you wanted a new building was going to be built at a shipyard that at that point did not then exist. 
So, um, you know, that that told you something about uh, the demand. And of course, the the the, the order book uh, got well over 60 percent of the of the total fleet, uh, which was in retrospect too high. Um, now we've got a very different situation. Demand is increasing slowly um, but steadily. Uh, supply is increasing almost not at all. And there are no orders for ships or very few, um, even though rates are doing quite well um, and are projected to do quite well for, for quite a while. And you know wh why is that? It's because you know, nobody knows what kind of ship to order. And um, you know, that's true in tankers, that's true in container ships. But um, in tankers, you've got some charters who are prepared to pay extra for an LNG-fueled ship. So people are ordering LNG-fueled tankers to some extent. And in the container business, um, you know, the customers are getting so upset with the container lines that the container lines feel like in order to avoid violence, they have to order ships and increase their capacity. Um, whereas, you know, in dry bulk, I think it's slow, it's steady, uh, but nobody's going to order ships for a while. And by the time we know what kind of ship to order, it's going to be a few years to get those ships. They're going to be very expensive ships. And so rates will have to be high enough to support those new building orders if they're going to happen. I think we're in a super cycle for many years. Thank you, Hamish. Uh, moving over to you, Mark, and, and Columbia Ship Management. You obviously have a, a pulse on a lot of things that's happening in, in the market. Could you just take us through what you're seeing and you know uh, what, what do you think about the, what, what the future holds for shipping? I, I think, uh, thank you. And thank you to Capital Link for inviting me onto this panel. I, I think I would echo uh, uh, all of the comments that have already been said. I think the only question uh, that, that certainly our group had from the, the ship owning side um, of our chairman is how long is this super cycle uh, going to last? And I think Hamish has hit the, uh, the nail smack on the head. It is this uncertainty uh, which will prevent this rush to the yards to build, 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 even though the yards haven't yet got the capacity to do that. Ordinarily, they would have caught up perhaps in a very short space of time and the super cycle would rapidly, like it has in so many, uh, so, so many times in the, in the past, come to an end with uh, an oversupply of vessels again. We simply don't know what is happening geopolitically. If we look at the world from a geopolitical, through a geopolitical lens, it's hugely uncertain. We don't know where technology is taking us. We don't know where the, e the whole ESG environmental uh, uh, drive is taking us, what sort of ships will be required in the future uh, and what forms of propulsion will be acceptable, will tick the then uh, ESG environmental box. Uh, we see that big operators like Maersk are hedging their bets and saying it's going to be methanol uh, or, or is it going to be LNG or is it going to be hydrogen and a combination? Nobody knows. And that uncertainty is good insofar as it puts a break on what would otherwise naturally occur by way of knee jerk, which is a, a splurge on new builds. And we're just not seeing that. So um, I, I think it will be a, a continuing super cycle uh, going forward. Thank you, Mark. I'm moving over to you, to you, Stan. The, the LNG market has been extremely strong uh, given the season we've been in. It's been you know, some good days, very active with short, you know, time charter markets. What do you think the future holds over the, call it, next half a decade for shipping? I, I think it doesn't really feel like a super cycle right now, and that's maybe a good thing, because last time, back in 2006-07, uh, capital was incredibly accessible. So all the banks were out uh, providing capital and a lot of leverage you could use, like the, the financial markets to raise capital today. Most shipping companies are trading well below NIV. So, uh, so even even though uh, 
rates are going somewhere. It doesn't really reflect in the financial markets, and people aren't, you know, also able to to order a lot of ships. Uh, ship capacity has been um, been been reducing for uh, several years now because the yards have been losing so much money uh, over the last couple of years. So uh, I think that's kind of makes it um, better for the future because uh, capital is scarce. Shipping companies are being priced, priced below NAV. The yards are not too eager to expand capacity. And I think that can create a super cycle, whether we will be there. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure yet. It's, it's too early to say, but there are certainly some good drivers here for the shipping market with the uh, supply of ships uh, being low and, and also uh, both from my yard and a financial point of view. When it comes to LNG, we, we don't really have this propulsion puzzle because the propulsion is, is very easy. It's, it's LNG, you're just eating off the cargo to use uh, for propulsion. So we do see some more ordering here in this, uh, this space than the other segments, except for containers, of course. But, but that's also driven by the fact that you have a lot of older ships uh, which are technically obsolete and where we do expect uh, scrapping to go up quite a lot in the near future. Thank you, Esther. And, and uh, John, the, the LPG market has been perhaps the best one if you look aggregated for the past six, seven years. But you know things are not horrible at the moment. Their rates are above cash break even. But do you think that we could, you know, that you are going to follow the the bulkers, the containers, and the LNG side, you know, uh, rate wise over the next coming years? Oh, we hope so. Uh, uh, to to follow that, but you you know, LPG has been on a um, on a big cycle uh, since the shale gas revolution in um, about 2011, 2012. We thought we were gonna be on a big super cycle in 2005 and four when we built our first big ships, but uh, it did not uh, come out to be what, what, uh, what uh, ensued after that. Uh, the the um, Middle East uh, Gulf did not produce the LPG that we were expecting in, uh, 2006, 7, 8, and 10. Uh, but then uh, the United States came in in uh, uh, 2011, 12, very small amounts of LPG started coming out. And now it, it has been on a super uh, supply uh, cycle uh, where the United States has become 50% uh, of worldwide production of LPG. So as such, I think LPG on a supply side has been uh, a star. Uh, performing commodity. It has become um, um, attractive, not only to homes for uh, uh, cooking and heating, um, which is about 50% of the, of the demand, but it also uh, for the petrochemical industry. So I, I think it has uh, proved to be a very uh, important uh, uh, commodity to come into existence from 2013 onwards. And uh, 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 we expect that this supply uh, will probably be followed by a big um, demand super cycle of, of this commodity because it's becoming more widespread and it's a more attractive, cleaner um, uh, commodity. It can be used on uh, new buildings now as a, as a fuel, uh, effective from this year. Uh, it was a, a bit of a delay on that, but... Uh, I, I think we, that's why we have seen also a big uh, new building spree because uh, dual fuel ships built with LPG engines is a way going forward for the next 10 years at least. And then I guess uh, trend, transitioning into more carbon free fuels. Thank you, John. And Mikhail, I saved you for last. I'm sorry, sorry about that. But uh, I think it's, it's, well, there's no point of sugarcoating it, but uh, the tanker market has been. Uh, a big disappointment so far, but uh, are you seeing any signs that you know things are are about to turn for for the tanker market as well? Yeah, so I mean, I think you know the view that we have on um, on the current situation is that you know as far as tankers are concerned, um, you know the cycle that we're just ahead to enter is going to be different than what we saw in in the mid two thousand, which was very much as Hamis I think mentioned, driven by. A significant demand increase, uh, particularly in China in general. We think this time, um, you know, with a net inflow of below 1%, uh, you know, the next coming years of new tonnage uh, and the demand, which we have seen, 
after uh, post-COVID-19 lockdowns, how quickly demand of, of oil consumption actually comes back in these areas. These two in combination, I think, will give us quite a number of years um, of, a, of a very interesting market. But it's very much driven by low supply and what we just would see as normal steady increase of demand. So that's the difference. But, you know, I think it may even have, um, you know, a longer tail on it uh, for some of the reasons already mentioned in this panel, which is that what do you order, particularly in the tanker industry going forward? Uh, bigger ships with dual fuel engine? Yeah, you can argue that can make sense. Uh, but for the product tankers, it's really only against long-term contracts. So, you know, as most of the market is based on spot chartering and spot market in general, we see that this, this halt in ordering, uh, you know, has not only stopped, we also think that for the next couple of years, it's going to be difficult to justify building medium-range product tankers with dual fuel engines. It just doesn't make any economical sense. So that, that to us is really what will drive, we think, a very interesting number of years for tankers is really that low supply and, and uh, you know, the fact that it just does, it doesn't make any economical sense for medium-sized ships to have dual fuel engines at the moment. Thank you, Mikael. Um, I think you're know, moving over to, to the demand side of the equation. Uh, one of the big macro themes we've seen, or big, one of the big themes in shipping so far this year has been the commodity rally, which we've seen, you know, LNG and coal close to, you know, decade highs. We've seen surging iron ore prices. Um, and, you know, it could seem like part of the, you know, why we've seen these rallies is obviously a combination of pent up demand coming back, but also that, you know, um, uh, disturbances on the supply side. So, yeah, maybe start with you, Einstein. Is there a case to be made that what's happening on the LNG side now could cause demand destruction further down the line? We've always talked about, you know, LNG being cheap and accessible uh, in order to penetrate new countries. Yeah, I think definitely today LNG prices are too high. I would actually prefer if European prices were falling 30, 40 percent because today European LNG prices twenty dollars. It's hundred and ten dollars per barrel of oil equipment, May, actually maybe 120. So, so it, the prices are too high. We do see more price sensitive countries rather than fuel burning coal or, or actually also fuel oil, including high sulfur fuel oil. So, so uh, but, but I don't think, you know, if you look at the prices now, they are abnormally high uh, and they're gonna probably stay high until end of the winter. So once you're getting into to next year, we do see more normalized prices on LNG, even though they are still pretty high. <laughs> uh, and, and actually, we don't really see them trending towards more like the normal prices before summer to 2023. And this is due to a lot of different factors. So it's everything from hydro levels being low, wind blowing, uh, less than, than normal, which Wall Street Journal uh, writes about today, and then less gas from Norway and less gas from Russia, pent-up demand, low inventory. So, so we really ended up in this perfect storm where just prices of LNG is going ballistic, uh, you know, which is good for cargo owners. Cargo owners make a lot of money and they can pay a, a more freight. You know, uh, But right now, of course, the prices in Europe are similar to Europe, and that's why the spot market's been a bit soft uh, recently, because uh, the spreads are not really there, and, and also uh, most of the portfolio players, traders, they are long shipping, because nobody really wants to be short shipping this winter, because this can blow up uh, if, if we just have uh, a cold winter, uh, given the, the low inventory levels. But uh, uh, you will have some demand destruction until um, prices of LNG uh, normalize, but that's not really a big problem today. You can sell LNG. If you have LNG, you will be able to sell it. That's for sure. Thank you, Stan. And maybe you know, staying on the on the on the gas trail, uh, John. In you know, we've seen on the on the LPG side, we've not really seen the same dynamics as we've seen on the LNG side. We've seen the Mont Bellevue propane price go to 120, and we haven't really seen you know a favorable price in Asia to allow for higher rates. Uh, do you think you know? Can you talk a bit about the demand situation you're seeing on, on the LPG side, particularly in Asia? Oh, you're muted. The demand has been very strong uh, in in Asia, uh, and the pricing has been very high, but. Uh, 
as we just discussed about LNG, LPG has been at similar kind of price levels. Um, we have been hampered by uh, uh, the 2020 COVID uh, situation, which kind of killed most of the production. Uh, and we are just about recovering uh, production uh, in, in the US Gulf generally, and we are seeing uh, the supply coming back and most of that supply is really going on exports. Uh, so, um, and the exports are very strong. Uh, we are seeing more than 80 ships a month uh, being uh, taken out. Uh, and um, Asia demand has been strong because um, Asia has been building PDH plants. Uh, so um, uh, the, 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 the pricing has, has really, um, not been very helpful uh, and with with low inventories in the united states uh prices will not going to go lower it's exactly what oyston said just a moment ago we are facing exactly the same situation um with low inventories going into winter time uh we are on the bottom of um of our five-year inventory uh we are on the bottom of how many days of supply we have However, as I just said before, production is on the top side of the five-year cycle. So we think that we are going to catch up at some point, but it might take until the spring of 2021-22 to be able to come back into some kind of uh, balance and therefore more attractive pricing. Thank you, John. And maybe switching gears over to the container side uh, quickly with Constantine. There's been a lot of talk about the the price of you know uh, hiring vessels at the moment. We've seen some of the big liners already introducing rate caps, and I guess you can argue how much they are going to to matter in in the long term. But um, you know, is there? Uh, is container rates becoming too high for certain players in, in the value chain or, or you know, can you still live with the, the levels we have today? Well, the rates are extremely high and they are certainly, um, let's say, exaggerated due to the supply chain disruptions, right? Uh, if you look at the reliability of, of liner companies at the moment, it's less than 50%. So only less than every second box gets there on time. So I think this, this is, this is a, a testament to, to where the supply chain is, right? And this is a, a mix between, you know, the, the demand, uh, the V-shaped demand recovery that you know, simply had the boxes not where you needed them. Um, and, and now obviously more and more tonnage being thrown on the market, which will actually exaggerate the situation. And in, in, in my book, it will definitely last well into 2022. And this is, if you talk to shippers, if you talk to liners, everyone is expecting that. You still have a situation where there's very low inventory levels in the US. Uh, a lot of growth at the moment, demand growth is actually, you know, driven by the US. Um, the rest of the market is, is, is not growing that, that, that much. Um, it's growing, but not that much. But we obviously have, and a lot of the, the other panelists here have alluded to that already, a very tight uh, supply side, right? Um, and this is capacity being bound due to inefficiencies and constraints, but also the order book. And yes, in containers, there has been quite a significant ordering spree since uh, Q3 last year, mainly very large ships and not to be delivered in the next 24 months. So, so I think the rates um, will continue to be high to your question on whether that will actually affect certain parties in the supply chain. Yes, it might, um, but at the same time, you know, the demand is there and the demand will find its way. Uh, I mean, we have charted out vessels directly to end users, to shippers, because of the re reliability concerns they're having. And we're actually seeing, and, and uh, I don't know if Hamish can uh, comment on that, we've actually seen containers moving to, to Bulkas, right? Uh, I mean, this is, this is where we are. And this is, this is a matter of very important um, to understand very good demand, um, demand on the wrong side of the table, basically. Uh, and the um, disruption will continue. It will continue into 2022. It might leave certain parties off the table, but others are willing to pay up for what has been extremely low cost, cost of transportation over the last decade. And I think we're just there where it, uh, where it uh, has to be, maybe not at the accelerated levels, so at lower levels, but certainly at higher cost of transportation um, what we've seen compared to the to the last 10 years. 
Thank you. And uh, that was a good transition to, to Hamish. You know, we've seen coal and iron ore, they obviously come down from, from the peak levels, as, at least iron ore. But are you seeing any risk that that could kind of derail some of the economic growth going forward and, and kind of have negative implications down the road for the dry bulk market? You know, we're not seeing any negative signs. Um, you know, basically, um, you know, th there may be slightly less demand for iron ore in China, but there's more demand for iron ore elsewhere. Um, and, you know, frankly, we see the limit uh, on iron ore shipments as being the amount of, of iron ore production, uh, you know, especially in Brazil. But Brazil seems to be ramping up. And, you know, coal demand, again, seems to be quite strong. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, coal generated electricity that seems to be required uh, because there doesn't seem to be enough, you know, wind, solar, um, hydroelectric power, um, you know, to generate enough electricity to satisfy demand. So, uh, you know, it's all that all is is looking good. And of course, grain is looking quite good. So, uh, you know, we, we see demand basically growing relatively steadily, not, you know, not like the container business where demand, you know, took off, but just a, a nice steady increase uh, in, in dry bulk demand. And, you know, I, I think it, it's been very helpful that when economies want to be stimulated or when governments want to stimulate their economies, they tend to do it with infrastructure spending, at least in part. And that, of course, drives demand for dry bulk. Thank you. And I think that's an interesting point you make in terms of solar and wind. And there's all these talk about, um, you know, renewables. Uh, could it be, you know, a case that uh, the investments and energy required to, to build out both solar and wind power uh, will keep commodity prices higher for longer. Is that a case to be made? And I don't know if you want to answer Hamish or anyone else on the panel. Well, look, I, I, I won't give a definitive answer because I'm frankly not an expert, but it, it is certainly the case that uh, wind power and solar power to build out that that capability will take, a, at least for a several year period, a very large amount of commodities shipped around the world. So it's, it's got to be a significant effect. And you know the, the wind and solar power will also need storage of electricity. And that's gonna take, building out the electricity storage is gonna take a lot of commodity shipment as well. If I could, if I could add to that as well, I think uh, through our MPP fleet, uh, AAL, you know, we're seeing not only um, the installation of further wind turbines, but of course, this is a time as we come out of the uh, the pandemic over the next year, two years, uh, that's often been compared to the Roaring Twenties. There's a huge energy to renew and restructure and rebuild uh, alongside a number of states that were at that point of development in any event. So I think, you know, even the existing infrastructure. I think it got too excited. <laughs> <laughs> or perhaps the infrastructure let him down. <laughs> Needs to buy more copper. <laughs> All right. Uh, while we wait for Mark, I think uh, we can jump over and, and uh, discuss uh, a bit about the, the supply side. And I was going to direct this question to Mark, but I think we'll, we'll uh, have to wait. Um, but I want to talk a bit about congestion. And um, it's seemingly been helping a lot, of, uh, a lot of these markets. And Mikola, I want to just ask you first, are you seeing any type of congestion in the tanker market as we've heard of on you know in the dry bulk or container space that could you know perhaps be hidden supply once uh, once they return to the market or is it you know uh, limited impact of that in, in the tanker market yeah so, so we're not really seeing any effect of uh, of any form of delays at the moment so I, I don't think that in itself um, 
is going to have any impact. I think you know the key issue really for from the tanker side is uh, so demand is of course one, which is very much about transportation, people flying, driving, etc. That we're still short of three to three and a half million barrels per day of demand. But I think the you know the key element here as well for for oil is that you know the last nine months has basically been spent in drawing down inventories you know to way below five year average. Um, so I think the market has set itself up for a very vulnerable situation. Um, so what you're probably going to see is that whether it's a seasonality, whether it's any form of disruption, I think right now the, the tanker market, and it may look a bit weird considering where the rates are, but it's getting tight. And as we are delivering a finished product, it doesn't take much of a disruption or seasonality really uh, to start transportation again, because you're not going to be able to draw any more from inventory. So I think that's kind of our caveat if, if you talk about an element or a factor that can very quickly get the market to move. Thank you. And uh, maybe moving back to you, Constantine, there's been a lot of uh, things written and said about the congestion and, and supply chain disruptions in the container market. But you know, could you just, is, is it possible to quantify the impact it's having and, and you know, maybe uh, comment on how long you see these uh, these supply side factors um, continuing to have a positive impact on your market? I think it's it's very challenging. And I mean, people have expected that uh, this year, Chinese New Year would be the D-date when things will normalize. You know, then you had additional effects. I mean, we had the Ever Given, we had, we had Yanxiang, we had Ningbo, uh, you know, and then we had a demand growth uh, due to the V-shaped structure of the demand development of the volume development that completely, you know, distorted the picture. So if you look at, uh, and then in May, people thought, you know, congestion, for example, in LA, Long Beach went down. So people thought, well, this is the end. So it's now going to be sorted out. And now we're at an all-time high, right? We, we have uh, vessels at anchor in the Americas of more than 130 vessels in the total region, right? This is not just LA, Long Beach, but this gives you an idea how much capacity is actually kept. Um, and I think the, the question is also that the vessels find alternative routes. We have a 2,800 U ship on an east-west route going from China to the US. The vessel doesn't fit there, right? I mean, it, it shouldn't go there. It should be be transported. The boxes should be transported by much larger vessels. So, so these vessels need to be phased in, phased out into services. Um, and, and that's why I think there will be a, a prolonged period of disruption. Um, it'll take time until things normalize. In addition, we still have, and that's a very important factor, and it's being addressed in the US, uh, uh, in, in fact, we, we have the infrastructure issue, right? I mean, automation of, of ports in, in Europe or elsewhere is, is, is standard. In the US, it's still a lot of you know, manual work. Um, and then you had the disruption due to COVID that causes a lot of delays. So all these things will not be changed overnight. Um, we have larger and larger vessels, uh, see the ever given. I mean, larger vessels, if a larger vessel has an issue or if there is a constraint in the schedule, it will simply have more, more knock-on effects. So um, looking at volumes, looking at what shippers are prepared to commit, also in terms of longer-term commitments vis-a-vis -vis liners or even chartering in ships from tonnage providers like us, I'm personally um, of the expectation that this disruption will, will definitely last well into next year. Um, and that's, uh, that's a challenge for, for the industry, uh, but unfortunately, it is what it is. Thank you. And uh, Hamish, I know you're you're very good with numbers, and there's a lot of talk with um, you know both impact from the containerized trade going into dry bulk. There's uh, the um, the congestion scene in China. Do you have any numbers you can attach to to those two things, or is it difficult? It's it's difficult to attach numbers, but I, I will say that there there's a big you know COVID is having a big impact on congestion. Uh, you do have a, a number of vessels waiting outside ports for you know a, a certain number of days to elapse since they've been at the last port before they'll be allowed in to uh, to discharge. Um, and of course, you know, there's another effect, which is we still have to divert ships to the Philippines sometimes to change crew. Um, you know, we not as much as before, but it's it's a pretty big impact. Um, and um, you know, and and then you know, just normal port congestion from having, you know, in in a in a certain period of time more stuff to discharge than can be discharged or more stuff to load than can be loaded. 
and you know, I, I don't think this is going to start to normalize until the demand for massages reaches its, you know, think about, you know, the demand for massages worldwide. That's an indication of when we'll start to see the shipping industry sort of get back to normal. You know, that's what, when tanker demand will pick back up, that's when demand for, you know, stuff shipped out of China will come back down to sort of normal levels. And, and when, uh, you know, port congestion for dry bulk will, uh, will, will probably return to more normal levels. But I'm optimistic for dry bulk, even after the demand for massages normalizes. Because again, you know, we don't have a good reason to order ships and demand just keeps growing slowly and steadily. Thank you. I'll make sure to introduce introduce a graph on that in our next uh, next shipping weekly um, as a shipping indicator. Um, Mark, just uh, I know we lost you for uh, for a few minutes, but um, uh, just very briefly, could you talk about what you're seeing on the congestion side, maybe across the various segments? Um, if you have anything um, that you, I, I, are... I thought I'd uh, join the wrong. Um... Uh, the, the wrong uh, seminar actually when I heard about the demand for massages I thought the conversation has really galloped on while I, I lost so apologies for that look I think uh, uh, congestion of, of course we're seeing uh, a congestion across the board and and uh, um, Hamish touched on it there I, I think operationally alongside this super cycle a huge operational concerns that we have certainly on the the management side and i'm sure it's across uh, across the board you know we had vessels that were um having to be uh, extremely economically managed um prior to covid because shipping was in a very different economic space then being hit by covid and our inability to get boots on the decks in far, as far as surveyors are concerned, et cetera, and, and really ensure that maintenance was taking place on board the vessels by very um, uh, worried crew who over their uh, rotational periods, et cetera, and, and, and perhaps not in the most motivational place. Um, you know, I, I think these are operational challenges alongside the, the continued rotational issues that we're having that can't be underestimated. Will that stop the super cycle? No, it won't. But uh, and, you know, shipping is amazingly adept at dealing with these uh, challenges. We don't call them problems uh, and deal with them. We will. But the vaccination, crew rotation, uh, outstanding crew rotation, congestion are huge operational issues which threaten the growth of the sector overall, irrespective of all the uh, the dynamics being um, very much positive. Thank you, Mark. And uh, I guess we can't have a ship shipping seminar in, in 2021 without touching on, on regulation. And I want to talk uh, or ask you, Einstein, you've, um, in, in the LNG segment, there's, I don't think there's been any segment that's been more technological uh, progress over the years. There's a lot of older vintage uh, vessels just with all the new regulation coming how do you see the impact on the lng market it's obviously the order book in lng is quite big that's a lot of it is tied to projects but then you have this potential wave of phase out um just curious to hear what you're thinking around that oh it's it's our main business thesis has been uh, ordering the new ships when uh, shipbuilding prices were low in 2017 and 18. so we bought these ships for 180, 185 million dollars. Today, new building price, 205, 210 million dollars. So these are the new sh ships, uh, all, you know, we got the last ship delivered in May. And so all the 13 ships are on the water. And of course, the reason for doing that is because of the, this technology progress we have seen going from having the least efficient ships in the industry with steam propulsion, which, you know, the tankers left back in the 70s. Uh, and those ships are still 200 of those on the water. So we do see now with EEXI and the carbon indicator regulation coming into force in 2023, that certainly there will be a phase out of the steamships. And our thesis all along has been those, once these ships are coming off their legacy long-term contracts and rolling off those, they will not be renewed, but replaced. And uh, that's why we haven't been worried uh, 
uh, about the order book because uh, there is a lot of pent up scrapping in this sector and we do think that a lot of these steamships will certainly have problems uh, with the new regulation in terms of emissions. Uh, and also no, right now with these high LNG prices, this ship I have behind me here, it consumes 60% less CO2 no, fuel per um, cargo. So if you have LNG prices at $20 per, uh, per million BTU and you have a ship which is uh, almost 60% more efficient, of course you can pay a higher charter rate for that ship as well. So, so that's why we are um, have a positive outlook on the market because there will be a lot of ships being uh, uh, scrapped out of the market. The first ships to go are all the steamships built before 2000 and then all the steamships being built after 2000. And, and there are some other of the ships in the, in, the, in the industry that will also have some problems facing this 40% uh, reduction in carbon intensity by 2030. Thank you. And I think while we're on the gas side, John, just uh, very quickly, I, I think a lot of people have been surprised to see the amount of ordering that's happened on the VLDC side um, this year. Why do you think we've seen so many orders and, and do you see kind of the, the orders that's been placed? Are there any natural face-out candidates um, in the VLDC market? Well, all, all, all the orders have been for dual fuel ships. So that kind of speaks for itself. Uh, why there are so many orders. Uh, the first engines came out earlier this year. Uh, as a result, people felt more comfortable ordering ships uh, for dual fuel LPG. Um, it, it, they will be able to uh, transition all the way into probably 2030 and beyond. Uh, their performance, uh, of course, they qualify for EXI and also they will be able to trade with the CII, with their uh, speed of consumptions, they will be able to trade uh, with CII uh, tightening every year into 2030 and beyond. Uh, so I, I, I think it was uh, something that everybody was waiting to happen and uh, yeah, finally a decision was made uh, to progress uh, into dual fuel ships. And I think that would mean that uh, some of the older ships in the fleet, about 30 or 40 ships that are um, uh, very old, have high consumption, smaller uh, uh, capacity, uh, will probably have to be retired. Um, and uh, I, I think that's what really made the difference this year on, on the equity sector. Thank you. And, and you know, we need to touch upon the, the equity markets. And, um, and I think we, we can do that kind of in, uh, in tandem with the discussion on, on regulation. But um, shipping has obviously been under a lot of scrutiny over in recent years uh, with regards to emissions. And uh, I guess one obviously obvious reason why we haven't seen uh, inv investments in new ships has been the uncertainty of propulsion. Another has been lack of capital. Shipping has not been a, a party for the past uh, past 10 years. Um, but now that many companies have a lot of free cash flow, how do you think of you know, investing for the future and also short-term gains to investors that are in your equities? Now, I'll just kind of leave that to, to the floor, whoever wants to take it. But how do you kind of match you know, investing for the future with the short-term um, dividend focus that many investors uh, likely have? Well, I guess what what Star Bulk is doing is is basically um, delevering uh, to the extent that our our bank debt amortizes normally, and it amortizes fairly rapidly. So we pay that amortization. So we're delevering, and then with the remainder of the cash, we're paying a dividend right now. Um, and you know, we are consciously leaving the job of renewing the fleet, which we will have to do for a time when we know what we need to order and we are able to order it. I mean, look what, uh, if I can mention, look what happened to the scrubber argument. You know, those that uh, jumped in and, and, and ordered scrubbers and fitted scrubbers, there is a question whether that will ever pay off. Does an investor look at... Uh, the shipping space now 
with the high cost of these dual fuel vessels, a high cost of technology and make an investment uh, comfortably. No, I think what we will see and, and, and much wiser heads than I have said it, uh, that you will see the existing fleet trading longer trading on low, low sulfur, trading with all sorts of carbon capture uh, technology, uh, trading with perhaps battery packs on board for the last 10 and first, last 10 kilometers in and first 10 kilometers out. We will see these vessels trading for, for longer, much more in a much more environmentally friendly way uh, than uh, that, that they're doing now. But that's the answer because there is no one solution yet. And uh, at the very best, we'll have a multiple number of propulsion solutions for the next 10, 15 years, which is not investor friendly. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big call to plumb for methanol. It's a big call to plumb for LNG stroke electricity or, 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 or sulfur, low sulfur. So, you know, the, it's not an investor friendly environment. Thank you. Maybe touch upon you as well, Constantine. You've obviously you're securing more and more backlog uh, every day at uh, fantasy rates. You're, you know, you're not generating that much cash flow today. But as we move forward, that cash flow is going to come. Are you are you tempted <laughs> to kind of go out and renew the fleet? Or I know you acquired the Songa the, the Songa fleet, but you know, in terms of new builds, maybe replacing some of those uh, older vessels in your fleet. Uh, just curious how you think about. You know dividends that obviously a lot of investors have been waiting for, and the the fleet renewal. Sure, and and I can to some extent echo what what Hamish has said on 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 taking the right decision at the right time, right? And then I personally think it's 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 not the right time to order new builds, at least for us. Um, we believe that. Um, we have an age profile in our fleet which actually matches very well my expectation on being well positioned for an energy transition, right, in terms of renewing the fleet. So our average age is 13, 14 years of age. We have basically, by the end of this year, we will have de-risk our enterprise value by cash flows and scrap. I think this is a very attractive proposition and that on the back of very, very low leverage, right? So we would also optimize our balance sheet structure on the back of our EBITDA backlog, um, de-lever the company financially, and then look at a um, at a significant dividend to return to investors. And this is the game plan that we have also communicated earlier this year. We still need to do a few tweaks on the balance sheet in order to be there. Um, but on the back of this significant uh, cash flow backlog, uh, I'm very confident that we will be getting there. And and the priority is to return capital to investors. Um, and given our backlog, we would still have enough, even if that was a majority of our, our free cash flow we would still have a significant uh, cash available uh, for fleet renewal when the time is right. And the time is not right at this very moment. We obviously very carefully observing the market and the options out there. But, and that I think is in line with what, what Mikael said earlier on the smaller vessels, on, on smaller container vessels, also dual fuel options or, or all these kinds of gimmicks, they do not economically make sense. It does make sense on larger container vessels. This is why we have seen an ordering spree there on the smaller units where we have our uh, basically home turf, um, it, it doesn't really make sense. And this is why we have also not seen that many orders. So we will be very rational and prudent on our capital allocation. We will return capital to investors, deliver the company. And I agree with what uh, Mark has said as well. There will be more a, a life cycle approach uh, to using vessels. We would rather invest into some of our vessels where it makes sense to optimize them from an emission standpoint and extend the useful life because that, in my view, is the right way to approach the, the current market and environmental environment. Thank you. Um, there's been a lot of talk about a super cycle, and I think Einstein alluded to this uh, earlier today, that you know, there is a bit of a disconnect in terms of perception that we are in a super cycle and where the equities are trading, because to my recollection, at least all of you are trading below or at yeah, close or most of you below a net asset value, um, which makes little sense if we're actually in a super cycle because that you should uh, by proxy have uh, shares trading above net asset value. Any, any comments on that? Um, you know, how you guys are being priced by the equity markets at the moment versus the, the steel values? Well, uh, you know, in, in our case, uh, you know, we, we, we don't try to, you know, pay much attention to the share price. Um, but, you know, I, I think that when you're paying a dividend, 
I think people want to see it happen for a few times. And I think the more often they see it happen, the more comfortable they get that it's going to happen again. And, you know, I think that probably will give confidence to the investor base. Thank you. And, and we, we, maybe do pay, we pay attention to your stock price, and that's why we've been buying back 1 million shares uh, since November, because it's been crazy cheap. Uh, so we told people, you know, it's, uh, it's Black Friday pricing on the shares and people uh, didn't pick it up. So then we started picking up the stock. So last 12 months, we distributed 96% of our earnings, mostly through dividends, uh, but also some buybacks then. And uh, that's our uh, plan going forward as well. And we guided that revenues will go up in the second half of the year. So potentially it's for higher dividends in the future. And but. We don't look at the stock price when we are investing shares. If you look at the stock price when you are investing in ships, you're always going to do the wrong thing because you're going to invest on the peak. And that's been the problem with a lot of listed shipping companies over the years. They always invest at the peak because that's when their share price is high and they can issue equity because also the capital markets are more liquid. So, so we have done the, the, the opposite. We invested in ships a couple of years when they were much cheaper than today and now we're taking delivery of those ships and now we're harvesting the cash flow and paying it out to our shareholders. I think in, in terms of, you know, we've seen uh, asset value soar, um, even on the tanker side, Mikael, where earnings, uh, uh, you know, have been, as I mentioned uh, earlier, it's been, it's been absolutely horrible. Have you considered selling assets, you know, given the backdrop we've had with uh, loss-making earnings and really, really strong uh, asset values to kind of bridge that gap to, to NAV? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, again, that's more being part of a, you know, a free renewal strategy, if you like. So we have been selling off some older assets, but again, you know, again, we don't buy and sell shares either just in the bag of, of, of you know, a share price here now. Um, I think it, it's fair to say, talking about the equity market and why we've been trading low in general, is that, you know, the shipping market has been crying wolf for quite a number of years. And nothing really happened. And if you go back in 15, for instance, also in tankers, there was a very high expectation that a really high freight environment was going to move share prices and asset values up. But it never happened because nobody really believed it was sustainable. I think this time around, it's slightly different. We're actually seeing asset values moving up before earnings. So, you know, I think fundamentally, um, you know, the fact that, that we do have that supply scenario that we talked about earlier, all of us, I think is also giving investors you know, a, a belief that, that this might be different. But I think also, you know, more importantly, I mean, it, it's so important that the companies that are spot market focused has, and I think the last couple of years have actually proved this, has a long runway. The thing with shipping is that you can't gear up and be aggressive towards an expected spot market upturn that's going to happen within the next six to 12 months. Everyone that's tried to do that has failed. I think what, what investors need to look for is that long runway but when the payday comes, as we've seen in containers and dry bulk, it comes quickly. I mean, who would in September last year expect the dry bulk market to be where it is? Very few people. And I think this is the thing about shipping is that when if you have companies that have a long runway, they will be there when the market is there to, to harvest, right? And I think this is probably one of the key components, I think, for investors to look out for. Yeah. And, and I mean, just, just getting better to your question about regulations, you know, we think the decarbonization regulations are going to be really helpful to the shipping industry for a long time because, you know, the decarbonization regulations will require that the fleet basically completely turn over at great cost because the, the ships that people will order will be very expensive ships. And yet people won't be forced at gunpoint to order these ships. They will be economically compelled to order the ships. And what does that mean? It means rates will be high. They have to be high in order to turn over the fleet and get the fleet that is demanded by the upcoming regulations. Thank you. Any other further comments to that from, from our panelists? 
All right. Uh, I guess we can. We have uh, room for one more question. Let's see. We have uh, have five minutes left. But I think you're onto something in Hamish and also Mikal in terms of that the perception of sh of shipping could you know potentially change now. What we have these regulation coming up. Um, but we also have had an issue in shipping for a long time, which is is leverage, as as Mikal pointed to as well. Is this a opportunity for you? Uh, maybe direct this question to to Oyster uh, and, and Constantine first, but to kind of just delever fully and have a company that is, you know, capable of paying dividends over the cycle, as, as Hamish has alluded to on the, the Starbucks conference calls in the past. Well, when I went to business school, we learned that, you know. Uh, Equity is a pillow, debt is a dagger. If you don't have any debt in the company, you will have lazy management. And I still believe that. That's why we have the leverage and uh, we're not planning to reduce leverage beyond what we are paying in amortization. And of course, the amortization of our ship is much quicker than the economic life reduction. So, so we feel uh, comfortable with that. So uh, we rather focus on dividends. And also if you are, have some leverage and you're paying dividends, then management will also stay awake a bit uh, during the night because they know that they have to, to pay this dividend and also pay the debt. And of course, the debt is cheaper. But of course, you have to, you have to engineer the level of debt uh, towards your business risk. So if you have a very high business risk, you know, i.e. being fully spot exposed, then of course, you, you need lower leverage than if you have uh, a, a bigger backlog. So what we have been doing since April now is to add a lot of backlog to our, our company and that enables us to pay more dividend. But uh, the leverage is going to stay the same uh, except for the, 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 the normal uh, deleveraging through amortization. Thank you, Constantine. You have a comment? Sure. Um, I mean, it also depends on where you are with your company and your fleet age, etc. Right. I mean, we we have, uh, let's say, 13, 14 years uh, old vessels. We we are in a market where we earn a lot of money. Uh, so we have a very high operational leverage. Um, adding financial leverage provides flexibility um, uh, in your capital allocation decisions in a certain way. But we believe that going into you know, the next 10, 15 years, uh, where there will be a lot of requirements from companies to have a moderate to low leverage is clearly a beneficial um, element in my view, because you simply have more flexibility um, um, going forward. And that's why we will definitely adhere to a low leverage strategy. Uh, that doesn't mean no leverage, uh, clearly, um, because there I agree with some of the, the comments that Oyster made just now. I mean, there's no purpose in, in having no leverage. I mean, a leverage optimizes your balance sheet structure to the extent that it, that it doesn't <laughs> at some point, right? So you have to be very, uh, uh, very careful. Uh, we will adhere to a low leverage strategy um, and make sure that we have all the flexibility to take discretionary capital allocation decisions going forward, including a high dividend and including also potentially making use of accretive acquisitions. So lo lo low leverage, not low, not no leverage. Thank you. We have uh, time for one more reply to that. Uh, there's about a minute and a half left. So if anyone uh, has any comment on, on the leverage side, please go ahead. Well, um, on Dorian, um, perhaps uh, we should say that uh, Dorian has just paid a dividend for uh, uh, first time. Uh, and we, uh, we, we sense that uh, dividends may be a way to help uh, uh, investors in a return of capital. We have already done uh, tender offers. We have bought shares back and we have kept our leverage low, below 40%. So uh, we, we think we've done everything that we can as, uh, as far as corporate uh, management is, is concerned in, um, in trying to return back to the shareholders um, the best value for, the, for, 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 for their invest in, investment in, in Dorian LPG. So, um, we hope to see uh, benefits out of that uh, approach. Uh, and also we have uh, uh, something to touch on, uh, S&P, we've sold one of our ships, uh, to one, of, one of the oldest in return for a new ship that we have ordered. So um, trying to be measured in our uh, ways of looking into the company and trying to um, uh, keep uh, a low leverage because I think in the future, uh, we all will, probably have to invest in our vessels for the future regulate, regulatory requirements. 
uh, and uh, you know make sure that our vessels perform a lot better, perhaps uh, uh, install carbon capture or uh, things like that before we do go to nitrogen or ammonia. So. Thank you, John. I think we're just on time there. So I want to uh, thank all the panelists uh, for joining us here today. And uh, I'll give the floor over to you, Nicholas. Well, thank you very much. Uh, this is uh, a terrific way to uh, almost conclude the, the, uh, the forum. We have one more uh, closing remarks coming up. But I have to say this has been uh, uh, an amazing insight. Uh, thank you. We have the leadership of major companies from different sectors extremely compact and comprehensive. So all I can say, a tremendous thanks. And I'm delighted, frankly, that uh, we have been able to hold uh, such uh, a great event within the London International Shipping Week. Thank you to all of you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you. Nico. Yeah. Thanks. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you. Take care.